Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Life and Light, Death and Darkness, and is based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March 26, 2006, the fourth Sunday in Lent. In the Academy Awards 2005 film of the year, Crash, director Paul Haggis paints a grim picture of human nature. The movie opens with a car wreck that serves as a metaphor for the collisions between ordinary people that unleash the rage that is normally suppressed by superficial social bonds. The most incidental encounters, in fact, trigger this rage. Vernacular slang, work, dress, music, marriage, and family. We watch as a Persian shopkeeper exclaims, they think we're Arabs. A Hispanic locksmith, two black hoodlums, a wealthy black film director, redneck white trash, a despicable suburban white couple, and an idealistic white rookie cop all project their insecurities and stereotypes onto each other. Paranoia, not all of which is unjustified, bigotry and mutual misunderstanding darken the lives of these people. In Crash, good people are bad, bad people are good, and everyone is a mixture of the two. When he issues a simple traffic citation, Officer Ryan molests a woman in front of her husband. Then, in a twist of irony, he later rescues her from a burning vehicle with professionalism, bravery, and genuine compassion. In another scene, Officer Ryan screams at a black woman clerk, while at home he tenderly cares for his dying father. You think you know who you are, Ryan advises his rookie partner, but just wait a few years. Other artists have painted similar pictures. In his famous painting, The Scream, from 1893, the Norwegian painter Edward Munch evoked the anguish, isolation, and fear that many people experience. Or in literature, after 10 years of imprisonment and internal exile, then 20 years of banishment to Europe and Vermont after he was stripped of his citizenship, for exposing the Soviet penal system in his three-volume Gulag Archipelago, Alexander Solzhenitsyn concluded, quote, When I lay there on rotting straw, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through all human hearts. This line shifts. Inside us it oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an ununprooted small corner of evil." End quote. The scriptures from the lectionary this week from Ephesians 2, chapter 1 to 10, in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, 14 to 21, 
echo both Paul Haggis's film Crash, the Norwegian painter Munch, and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. In John's Gospel, Jesus invokes the metaphors of light and darkness to depict our human struggle. And, as counterintuitive as it might seem, Jesus observes how we sometimes even hate the former and love the latter. Similarly, in his letter to the Ephesians, Paul describes our human condition as a titanic struggle between forces of life and death. Ignoring our own best interests, writes Paul, we gratify our selfish cravings. We follow dark desires and relish irrational thoughts. This includes, he tells the Ephesians, quote-unquote, all of us. We read about the moral monsters in history books. Hitler, Stalin, Lenin, Mao, Pol Pot, Idi Amin, Jeffrey Dahmer, and the like. The daily newspaper chronicles our will to death and darkness, political corruption, violence as media entertainment, corporate greed, beheadings in the, God, the name of God, and a failed Iraqi war that has slaughtered tens of thousands of human beings who were precious to God, squandered $250 billion, and demonstrated just how lethal dissimulation, hubris, and stupidity can be. For the garden variety struggles of sickness, death, divorce, drugs, joblessness, and the like, simply cast a compassionate glance towards your colleague or your neighbor. I'm fascinated how even our best and brightest describe their experiences of fallenness. After a lifetime pursuing moral virtue among monastic communities, in his book called Conferences, John Cassian of the 5th century wondered why monks who had renounced great wealth still exhibited possessiveness over a needle, a book, or a penknife, or why a colleague could fly into rage at a dull stylus. And in a remarkable anticipation of modern theories of the subconscious, Cassian also admitted, quote, the many things that lie hidden in my conscience, which are known and manifest to God, even though they may be unknown and obscure to me, end quote. Theories abound about how or why humanity arrived at this tug-of-war between light and life, death and darkness. You can take your choice. Bad genes, foolish choices, moral complacency, evolutionary struggle, the vagaries of fate, family of origin, bad luck, inexplicable mystery, or primordial disobedience by our forebears that we've inherited. I vote for all of the above. But even if satisfying explanations of the cause of our sickness remain elusive, the experiential descriptions of their effects by people like Haggis, Munch, Solzhenitsyn, and Cassian ring true to me. To quote Shakespeare, the fault is not in our stars, Cassius insisted to Brutus, but in ourselves. In an interesting article in the Times Literary Supplement, February 24, 2006, 
The British Jewish novelist and playwright Gabriel Josepovici argues that much to our frustration, the Bible leaves many questions unanswered. As pure narrative, he says, the Bible favors brutal realism about our human condition over superficial consolation or theological explanations. Quote, it does so, it seems to me, because it recognizes that in the end, the only thing that can truly heal and console us is not the voice of consolation, but the voice of reality. That's the way the world is, it says, neither fair nor equitable. What are you going to do about it? How are you going to live so as to be contented and fulfilled? End quote. Lent teaches us that the road to Easter resurrection and consolation passes through repentance and confession of all that we have done in thought, word, and deed, sins of omission as well as sins of commission. Denial, passive neglect, scapegoating, or rationalizations on our part will only delay our healing process. The shame and blame that church, society, family, and even our closest loved ones can pile on us can also hamper us. While some contemporaries might dismiss confession and repentance as overly dour, pessimistic, or even misanthropic, I believe with Josie Povici that candid realism is in fact liberating, and with Cassian, who surely had seen and every, heard every sort of pious pretense, that embracing our brokenness with what he calls, quote-unquote, no obfuscating embarrassment is in fact a healing process. Because of God's character, no person need fear death, either spiritual death now or physical death later. No one needs to grope in the darkness that Paul described. Every person can enjoy not merely bios, or length of days, but what Jesus calls eternal life, and what the Hebrew Bible calls shalom, genuine human wholeness. God, writes John in his gospel, did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Others might condemn you, but God does not. Paul agrees. After diagnosing our condition, Paul emphasizes that God showers us with great love, rich mercy, kindness, and incomparably rich grace, that is, with his unmerited favor. In being so favorably disposed to us, God longs to breathe life into the dead and to shine light into our darkness. Jesus compares this to a new birth, just as every person has experienced an earthly birth of human origin, he invites us to experience a spiritual birth of divine origin. Having confessed the depth of our need, we have only to embrace the grace that God offers to us. Paul tells the Ephesians that we do this by faith alone, apart from any human merit extending toward God what Martin Luther described as the beggar's empty hand that can only receive a gift. Accepting that we are accepted just as we are, just where we are, 
by God whose love far exceeds human failure. Lenten sorrow, confession, and repentance anticipate Easter joy and gratitude. And now for further reflection. What do you make of the descriptions of our human condition described by Haggis, Munch, Solzhenitsyn, and Cassian? Do you find these descriptions overly negative and pessimistic or instead realistic? Third, why is it so hard to admit our faults, sins, and failures? And finally, how much health healing and wholeness might a Christian expect this side of heaven. For books this week, I review a biography entitled Johann Sebastian Bach, His Life in Pictures and Documents with Compact Disc by Hans Conrad Fischer. The publisher is from Holzgerling in Germany, Hanser Verlag. 1985, and then again in the year 2000, 193 pages. In this simply written and beautifully appointed volume, Hans Fischer has provided a general overview of the life and times of one of the greatest composers ever to live. This book is no substitute for the likes of a book like Christoph Wolff's 600-page intellectual biography entitled Johann Sebastian Bach, The Learned Musician, but for that very reason, it's all the more accessible and enjoyable for the non-specialists. Hans Fischer concentrates on Bach's life and times, and there's very little analysis of his music per se. Born in Eisenach, home of the famous Wartburg Castle where Luther translated the Bible into German while in prison, Johann Sebastian Bach was the youngest son of a family of eight children, only four of whom survived. By age 10, both his mother and father died within a year, so the orphan Bach was raised by his brother. In his own two marriages, Bach fathered 17 children. Fisher insists that to understand Bach, you must move beyond mere technical or intellectual analysis and grasp the centrality of Bach's deeply held Lutheran Christian faith. Bach's organizing theme is just that. In his own words, the composer's lifelong goal was, quote, a regulated sacred music to God's honor, end quote. His life was centered around the daily prayers, life, and worship of the local church. Indeed, writes Fisher, Bach completely subordinated himself to the liturgy. At the top of many of his compositions, Bach wrote the two letters J.J., Yesu Yuva, Jesus Help, and at the end, of course, the three letters S.D.G., Soli Deo Gloria, for the glory of God alone. The subtitle of this book is important. Perhaps a full third of the book includes gorgeous plates of autographed manuscripts, engravings of churches and towns, period portraits of people who were close to Bach, along with important primary documents. For example, it's common knowledge that Bach came from a long line of family musicians. Fisher shows how and why we know this by including the entire 
Origin of the Musical Bach Family, in which Bach documented what he knew about his 53 ancestors back to the 16th century in Vitus Bach, a baker from Hungary. Or again, it's fun to read the City Council of Leipzig's Contract of Employment as the Cantor of St. Thomas's, where Bach spent 27 years. Among the 14 enumerated points in Bach's contract, quote, that I will make music in the two major city churches as well as I can. Point number two. Or again, point number 13, that I will not leave town without the mayor's permission. For about $1,300, you might purchase Hansler Classics of 172 CDs of the edition Bach Academy, the complete works of Bach. Or buy this book and enjoy the delightful CD that comes with it, entitled A Musical Journey Through the Life of Johann Sebastian Bach, which includes 17 extracts from the Hansler edition. Hans Conrad Fischer, Johann Sebastian Bach, his life in pictures and documents with compact disc. For film this week, I review Milwaukee, Minnesota from the year 2004. Jane Fonda's son, Troy Garrity, stars as Albert Burroughs, a poor imitation, you might say, of Forrest Gump. He's development, developmentally disabled and all the more so because of his overbearing mother who goes to excessive lengths to protect him from the real world. When his mother is killed in a suspicious hit-and-run accident, Albert is easy prey for two evil characters who try to con his considerable money, which he won as an expert ice fisherman. Albert's employer rounds out the cast as a good guy who has his best interest in mind, and who tries to shield him from the con artists. This film was a so-called official selection at film festivals in Palm Springs, Slamdance, and Seattle. But in my humble opinion, skip it. Milwaukee, Minnesota. And finally, for poetry this week, we have posted Lenten prayers all the way back to the 4th century in St. Ephraim of Syria. O Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, despair, lust of power, and idle talk, but grant rather the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love to thy servant. Yea, O Lord and King, Grant me to see my own transgressions, and not to judge my brother. For blessed art thou unto ages of ages. Amen. A Lenten prayer from St. Ephraim of Syria. Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March 26, 2006. And please join us every Monday for a new essay, book note, film review, and poem. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.